As you know, we don't uh, say much here at Cole Community Church about loyalty to the programs of, of the church. Our stress is on loyalty to Christ and loyalty to his people. And uh, we feel that if people love the Lord, they want to serve him. That means they want to serve his people. Uh, I have an opportunity for you to serve. I uh, have uh, found out that we have a fifth grade boys and girls class that uh, is in need of a teacher. We don't like to make open announcements like this when we have a need. We like to go directly to people. But I understand that Ron and Jane Graff have approached personally some 35 people, and they've either been involved in something else or are unable to serve, and the need is critical. So if you have, uh, you have a heart to serve and you want to teach a fifth-grade class of boys and girls, will you please uh, come up after the service and give me your name and uh, phone number, and Ron will contact you this week. Now, will you turn with me, please, to the third chapter of Titus? We're finishing up this morning our studies in this epistle, Titus 3. It's odd in a way that uh, the word Cretan has crept into our vocabulary to describe people that are boorish and uncultured and uncivilized because the Cretans were anything but uh, uncultured. They had a great uh, heritage. If you've heard the names of, uh, of King Minos and uh, the story of the Mycenaean civilization, the Minoan civilization, great city of Gnosis, the myth of the Mintar, all of those uh, those names are associated with the island of Crete and the people that lived there. They were highly cultured people, very civilized. But uh, civilization is uh, is a very uh, very uh, surface thing. Unfortunately, it's a veneer that can be scratched, and when you scratch it, you find that underneath there's a great deal of evil. It's true of us in our civilized state. It was true of the uh, of the island of of Crete. And Paul's concern in chapter 3 is with this matter of subjection to authority. The uh, Cretans were subject to the Roman Empire, and they resented it greatly. They did not want the federal government coming in and telling them what to do. And Paul was concerned about this this issue. He says in uh, verse 1 of chapter 3, Remind them, that is, these Cretans, and this is a word to us as well, Remind them to be subject to rulers and to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. There's a great deal of evidence from the writers of this period that uh, the Cretans were very independent thinkers. Uh, Their uh, theme song was, Don't Fence Me In. Give me room, lots of room. We would say today, give me space. That was their attitude toward, toward authority. Uh, Nero was on the throne at this time. He was the emperor of the uh, Roman Empire, and he was anything but a benign and uh, kindly uh, ruler. He was a evil, malicious, self-indulgent, self-centered man. There's no question about that. And yet Paul says that this uh, group of people in Crete are to be subject to him, to rulers and to authorities, rulers on the federal level, state and local level, municipalities, judges, Police officers, fish and game uh, officials, uh, were to be subject to them. There's a great deal of theology that lies behind this this notion. It would be good, I think, to go back to the passage that uh, 
Iran read for us Romans 13 because in the letter to the Romans, Paul lays down a great deal of the theology that underlies, that's underlying other of his statements. In chapter 13, Romans 13, verse 1, I'd like to have you turn and look at that passage, if you would, so you can see for yourself that it's actually there. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. This would be about AD 45, or 54, rather, and uh, Nero was on the throne then when he wrote the, uh, the letter to the Romans. Let every, every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. That extends even to the democratic process. We vote people into office, but it's God who establishes them. He appoints them. This would be true even of, of evil rulers like, like Nero. Now, we live in a country where we have the option of voting people out if we don't like them. And if we have laws that we feel are unfair, we can change them. But as long as people are in positions of authority and as long as laws are on the books, Paul says, we must, uh, we must obey them. We must be subject to the governing authorities because all authority derives from God. He's the author of it. He knows that without authority, there would be no civilization. Civilization is a gift from God, and it exists only because there's law and order and justice, and uh, law and order and justice is established because of, the, uh, because of the principle of authority. And without it, there would be total chaos, anarchy. You take away the, uh, the police and our laws and the other authorities that exist for one day, and we would see what civilization is really like what people are really like. That's Paul's concern. In uh, uh, A Man for All Seasons, Sir Thomas More is debating with his son-in-law about uh, right and wrong. And his son-in-law says, I will cut down every law in pursuit of the devil. And More says, and after you have cut down every law and the devil turns on you, where will you stand in the winds that blow then? And he's right, you see. Without law and order and justice, without the principle of authority and authorities in, in positions of, of, uh, of leadership, uh, there would be no order. Our, our lives would be in constant danger. Furthermore, Paul says, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and those who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. In other words, disobedience to, the, to authority is disobedience to God. We can't justify it. We can't rationalize it. If we do not submit to the laws that exist, then we're not submitting to God. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. Now, he was writing this when an unjust emperor was on the throne, and he recognized that all, not all laws and not all authorities are good. Nevertheless, in principle, in general, this is true, that if you do what's right, you don't have anything to fear from the authorities. For it, that is... Uh, the authority that exists is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. The sword is an instrument of capital punishment. It's the mean, means by which wrath is meted out. Paul recognizes that you have to have the principle of the sword behind law and order, otherwise people would pay no attention to the law. For it is a minister of God, an avenger, sent in powder blue vehicles to bring wrath upon the one who practices evil. Wherefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, that is, because uh, the authorities will get you if you don't, but for conscience' sake, that is, we do it for the sake of God. 
For because of this you also pay taxes, for rulers are a servant of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. The taxes pay the rulers who are behind the principle of authority. So uh, render all that is due to them, tax to whom taxes due, custom or duties to whom duties are due, fear or respect to whom respect, honor to whom honor, uh, respect and honor are the inner attitudes that ought to, uh, ought to govern our, our behavior. Obedience is the outward manifestation of that inner attitude of honor and respect for those that, that are in authority. Now, turning back to Titus again, Titus 3, we could go to 1 Peter 3. Peter, Peter says basically the same thing in his little, little epistle. We really don't have any option. It doesn't make any difference what kind of government we have. The alternative to government is chaos and anarchy. And if we do not submit to the principle of authority, then we align ourselves with those forces that are resident in society that are ready to break out at any moment and tear, tear society apart. And Paul says we just must not be a part of that kind of misbehavior. So remind them. That's uh, always what good teaching is. It's simply reminding people what the apostles have said. Remind them over and over and over again because we need to hear it over and over again because there isn't all of us this rebellious spirit. We don't want anybody to tell us what to do. So we need to hear this over and over again. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, that is, to the principle of authority. To be ready for every good deed. Now, he's talking about charitable activities within the community. Serve the community in some practical way, some helpful way. Serve as a volunteer in, uh, in some community service. Uh, if there's some reason for special action, such as uh, in times of crisis, tragedies, uh, plague, those sorts of things, Christians ought to be the ones that that are in the forefront of giving help. This was true in the Middle Ages. It was the Christians, by and large, who, uh, who were out helping people who had the Black Plague because they weren't, afraid of, they weren't afraid of death. It was Christians in the Middle Ages who established hospitals. Originally, they were called hostels, homes. They brought the sick off the streets into their homes and, and took care of them. This is the sort of thing that he's talking about. Make a positive contribution to your community, he's saying. Engage in charitable activities. Now, on balance, we need to understand that, that uh, uh, this kind of help only goes so far. It only helps people materially. It doesn't help them spiritually. But this is an opportunity for us to, in some practical way, uh, express the love of Christ for people and, and God's compassion for those that, that are in need. And, and very often, this is what opens up an opportunity to share with them the gospel because they've seen some demonstration of of the love of Christ in your in your behavior. So he says negatively, to be subject, that is to uh, simply do what you're told, but then positively to be ready to engage in, in good deeds, good actions, good activities. Verse 2, to malign no one. Uh, one of our favorite uh, indoor activities is uh, talking about those that rule over us, and, and often our conversations are not too, too positive. It's one thing to... Be wise and discerning and talk about the misdeeds of those in authority and to do something about it. It's another thing to insult them, to malign them, to talk about them behind their back, to badmouth them, as we would say. Because, and the problem with that is what we're doing is undermining this principle of authority. We erode away in other people's minds this idea that there must be authority in, in society. So he says, don't ever speak against, you know, in an insulting way, in a degrading way, don't speak against the leaders of your people. There's an interesting incident in the, 
in Acts 23, where Paul was brought before the Sanhedrin. And uh, uh, Paul was apparently uh, partially blind. He didn't see well. Luke says that he squinted at the council as he began to speak. He peered at them intently. He couldn't see them. So he couldn't distinguish who the individual members of the council were. And that's what led him to make the mistake that he made. He started out by saying, I've lived before God in, in good conscience all of my life. And Ananias, who was the high priest, who was a wicked fellow, said to someone that was standing by, smack him one. And apparently some bystander hit Paul and he lost his temper. <laughs> And he shouted across the room, and God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. And there was a stunned silence in the room. And someone said, Paul, that was the high priest. And Paul apologized. He said, I'm sorry. I didn't know it was the high priest. Apparently he couldn't see him. He said, it was wrong for me to do what I did. Because, and he quotes a passage from Exodus, it is written, you shall not speak ill of the leader of your people. Now, it's one thing to talk about their, uh, their behavior and do so in a positive way. It's another thing to malign them and, and, and in so doing, undermine the appreciation uh, that people have for the authorities that, uh, that exist. So malign no one, he says. To be uncontentious. Uh, the word means to be uh, peaceable, not eager to uh, take up arms. Some people have a higher trigger. And they're looking for any opportunity to, uh, to rebel. Paul says, don't, don't do that. Don't, don't take up arms against the authority. Don't do it quickly. Now, I'm not a pacifist. Some Christians are. Um, for myself, I'm not. Uh, the principle in Scripture is that the wisdom that's from above is first pure and then peaceable. The principle is not peace at all costs. There are times that we have to take up arms in the defense of certain basic truths and rights. So, and, and, and I understand that some Christians are pacifists. And I understand their position. But for myself, I'm not. However, I think what Paul is talking about here is not taking up arms in the right sense, engaging in, in what Augustine called just war, but rather this tendency to just seize the slightest opportunity to fly off the handle and to rebel simply because someone is unfair and unjust in their, in their treatment of us. And then to be gentle, he says. It's actually the word uh, that's used in classical Greek for good wine. Be mellow, is the idea. Uh, Psalm 46 says, be still and know that I am God. It's an interesting verb. The verb that's translated be still in Psalm 46 is a word that's used in the Old Testament for an unstrung bow. Uh, a bowstring that's hanging loosely in contrast to one that's tense and, and strung out, <laughs> strung up. And that's the point he's making. Hang loose in our idiom. Relax. Take, uh, take the cheap shots without, without reacting. Just be gentle. Return a kind word for uh, some uh, harsh uh, word. And then uh, finally in the verse, uh, show every... Consideration is the way the New American Standard translates, but actually it's a word for meekness that's found in the Beatitudes and other portions of the New Testament. Blessed are the meek. <coughs> Pardon me. Meekness is not weakness. <coughs> meekness is being non-defensive. It's letting God fight for you instead of uh, fighting for your own, your own rights. Uh, I have mentioned before, a number of years ago, William Kunstler, who is the... the uh, attorney for the Chicago 7 came to the university campus where I was ministering. And uh, we had our sound system set up 
we had a number of students who were going to, to give witness on the plaza. And these students came and took our sound system away, and we, all the Christians that were involved in this, uh, in this, uh, uh, this meeting, got together in a little group, got our heads together to decide what to do. And one of the new Christians in the group said, let's rush them, let's rush them. And I said, oh, no, 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 let's wait, just calm down, let, let God deal with this thing the way he wants to. And he did, he, he worked the thing out, but, but it's, it's that attitude that he's speaking against. So be, be gentle, be kind, be meek, be non-defensive, let, let God fight for you. Why? Why should we be like this? Because, he says in verse 3, we also once were foolish ourselves. We used to be that way. We were fools. That's the word he uses. Now, foolish man in the New Testament is not a man who knows nothing. It's a man who doesn't take God into consideration. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Foolishness is a moral issue. It's not an intellectual matter. Uh, he's saying we used to be like that. We, we didn't give God the time of day. We really didn't care what God thought or what he wanted us to do. We were once fools. We were disobedient. That is, we were lawbreakers. We didn't uh, pay any attention to the fish and game laws. We didn't pay any attention to the speed limits. We did what we pleased. We felt we had the right to. We resented every authority. We resented every law. Our uh, credo was, uh, don't fence me in. Give me room. Lots of room. Give me space. We used to be like that, he said. We were deceived. And as we'd, we'd bought the, the lie that Man is the measure of all things, that man has the right to determine his own destiny, that man is the captain of his own fate, he gets to call the shots, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. That sounds like James 4 to me. James says, do you know why wars come about? That's a good question. Do you know what starts wars? The United Nations has been trying to determine the answer to that question since its inception. The UN was set up to determine the cause of war and to eradicate it. And nobody takes them seriously anymore because they don't even know what causes war, much less can they eradicate it. But James 4 says the cause are, is this uh, pursuit of pleasure, the lust, the inordinate drive, the yearning for my own personal pleasure. I saw some amazing things during the gas shortage uh, years in California. This happened in California. It wouldn't happen here in Idaho. But when I saw a man pull into a, a line waiting to get gas, and uh, he, as we used to say, bugged in the line. He, he, he pushed in, into somebody else's place, and the man behind him leaped out of his car and went over and knocked on the window. And the guy opened the door, and he jerked him right out of the car. He would have beaten the man to death if, if people hadn't, uh, hadn't stopped him. See, this man thwarted his pursuit of pleasure. He wanted to be first in line. This man got in first, so he started a war. Or you've been talking to people all day, and you don't want to talk to anybody. You've got about a foot of tongue hanging out, and you'd like to be left alone. You want to rest. You go home. You want a little privacy, a little peace. Uh, your wife has been home all day with children. She hadn't talked to anybody very intelligent. She wants to talk. So she wants to pursue her pleasure, and you want to pursue yours, and what do you got? You got war. <laughs> Cold war, anyway. Paul says, that's the way we used to be. We were enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in 
in malice. The word means mean. He used to be mean. Mean is a junkyard dog. I have a friend who does a lot of hunting up in Hawaii County, and he came wandering down Sinker Creek one day and located a reservoir up there that had great big fish in it. He tipped me off and and uh, told me it was uh, on Tim Nettleton's property. So Pete Amon, who used to be an elder here, is a friend of Tim Nettleton's, and I wrangled a, an introduction while I was over there one day and asked him if I could fish on his reservoir. And he said, well, yeah, he said, but it, you have to walk several miles up Upstream, and I had a map, and I said, "Well, no, there's a there's a road here. I could drive right up this road and walk over this little hill there, and I'd be there." And he said, "I wouldn't do that if I were you." I said, "Why not?" And he said, "Well, there's a mean old man that lives up there." I said, "What what would he do if I walked across his property?" He said, "He'd shoot you." <laughs> so I, you know, I'm not going to fish over there. I, uh... <laughs> but there are people like that, very. Have a very even temperament. They're always mean. Uh, envy, he says. That, you know, we, we wanted things that belonged to other people, and we were mad because they had certain benefits and advantages that we didn't have. Hateful, hating one another, all forms of antisocial behavior. Let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a personal question here. As, as we've read through this list, you know, this describes what we were. This is the way we were. How many of you were like this before you came to Christ? Come on, honest now. Stick your hand up. How many of you were like this? Come on, be honest. I know some of you. I knew you before. Come on, get your hand up. How many of you were like this? All right, that's good. A little honesty is good for the soul. Some of you might have wandered in from the outside and look around. You think, man, these are this is my kind of people here. <laughs> That's the way we were. And let me tell you, civilization is just skin deep. As most of you know, back in the 60s and the 70s, when students were tearing the campuses apart, I was a, a minister to university students on a particular campus on the West Coast. And I was sitting one day in the patio of the student union. And there were a group of students that were picketing an office. And the reason they were picketing is because the rumor had spread that the CIA was recruiting in that office. They did recruit frequently on that campus, but they just, on this particular occasion, they weren't. And, and the, but these students were picketing out there. And, they, they, you know, they had the placards that everybody had in the 60s, make love, not war, and, and uh, peace in Southeast Asia and so forth. And there was a young photographer on the Daily Staff newspaper, the campus newspaper, was taking pictures of him. He's sneaking up with his little 35-millimeter camera, and he snapped a picture, and someone saw him, and they took out after him. And it, some of these uh, placards were on broomstick handles, and they started whacking this guy over the top of the head, and he started running for his life, and he ran for the student union, and the doors, unfortunately, opened out, and he got caught between the doors and the mob, and they almost beat that man to death. People there that were gathered around either joined in the melee and tried to kick him and hurt him, or they jumped to try to try to help. And it was just—it was frightful. I've never seen anything quite like that. They burned the administration building down. They destroyed the aerospace building. There was a lot of damage, but I've never seen anything quite like that. The hatred and animosity was poured out on that one man. He escaped by throwing his camera to them, and they smashed his camera and vented their wrath on that, and they let him go. And and here were these placards make make. 
love, not war, peace in Southeast Asia, and they almost beat this young man to death. Now, I want you to understand, these are students who come from the top 1% of their graduating classes around the United States. Most of their parents are professionals. They were spending an enormous amount of money to send their kids to that school. Most of them were affluent, cultured, civilized people. These were kids from the right side of the tracks. And the veneer was about that deep. Underneath was all of this restlessness and anger and bitterness and hatred. It's in them and it's in us. Don't kid yourself. Nietzsche said that people in mass will do things that people individually would never do. And the reason that's true is because in mass we're anonymous. Nobody knows us. And often it's just a little bit of social pressure that keeps us from manifesting what we are really like. Let's not kid ourselves. Paul's uh, description of the Cretans fits well into our, own, into our own lives. We were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another, all forms of antisocial behavior covered over with this veneer of culture, the arts, that these were the beautiful people. These are the people that had it all. But underneath all this, all this corruption. But... Paul says in verse 4. That's the turning point. When the kindness of God our Savior and His love for us appeared, He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. By the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. In order that being justified by His grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement. Uh, What Paul actually says is that this is a faithful statement or this is a statement of faith. And it's my belief that wherever that phrase occurs in the New Testament, it identifies a a statement of faith, a creedal statement, a little succinct statement of of apostolic doctrine. That's what you have here. Let's just keep it simple, he says. When, when the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared, he, he saved us. Now, the motivation for this salvation is God's kindness. He, he, the word means grace. It signifies God's love for us even though we don't deserve His love. It signifies God doing something for us, though we're worthless. We were like this, he says. But He saved us. And secondly, he did so because he loves us. Paul says, herein is love manifest, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son to be the expiation for us. He doesn't expect us to clean up our act. He just wants us to come and receive his love. Now, when he says kindness and love appeared, he's talking about the incarnation. You want to see it in action? Look at Jesus. You see the graciousness and the kindness of our Lord and his willingness to invest his time and his life in people who didn't deserve it and to love people who were very unlovely. And then the other word is in verse 5. It's, it's done according to his mercy. Grace is for the worthless. Mercy is for the helpless, those that can't do anything about it. There are any number of people that are characterized by the sins that are described here in verses, in, in verses 2 and 3 who would like to be different, but they cannot do anything about it. They can't change. And that's why Paul uses this word mercy. Mercy is for the helpless, those that can't help themselves. That's the motive. God's grace, his kindness, 
His love, His mercy. And on the basis of those attributes of God, He appeared and He saved us. Now, actually, the way Paul puts it is that he puts the He saved us way at the end of the verse. Reading it literally, it would sound like this. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, he saved us. He's emphasizing the fact that it was not our righteous deeds that rendered us acceptable in his sight. It was his grace for us that made it possible. He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Regeneration is a once-for-all thing. That's our term, born again. Remember the story of Nicodemus? Nicodemus was a religious man. Came to Jesus uh, at night. Jesus said, your problem, Nicodemus, is that you got off on the wrong foot. You need to start all over again. You need a new birth. Nicodemus says, how is that possible? Do I have to go back and be born again? Our Lord said, no, no, no. We're not talking about a physical birth. We're talking about a spiritual birth. It's a once-for-all thing. You come to Christ, and uh, he changes you, changes your heart. He gives you a, a different Outlook on life. You begin to yearn and long for different things. I, I can't explain it to you. I, I see heads nodding up and down all over the room. You know what I'm talking about. It's just a difference in your, in the inclination of your soul. You begin to want what God wants instead of, instead of your own your own things. And furthermore, he says, by the renewing of the Holy Spirit, regeneration is a once for all thing. Renewing goes on and on and on. Paul says in Romans 12:2, don't be conformed to this world. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Uses a word, uh, same idea here. Uh, the Lord takes the word of God and he begins to make it true in our life. As Paul says, though the outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. Little by little, he begins to change us and conform us to his character. And on ahead, he says, is this, this great thing that he's prepared for us. Being justified. In verse 7, being justified, that's his word for salvation. By his grace, we might be made heirs in hope of eternal life. Heirs in waiting. We have, uh, we have the down payment now. We have the promise now. We don't have all of God yet, but one of these days we'll have everything that God has, has promised. Uh, Jeannie Parsons tells the greatest little story about Katie. Uh, they bought her train and. She was just too young to play with it, so they decided to put it up, and they put it in the closet. And, and every day, Katie goes uh, to the closet, and she looks up at the train, and she says, that's my train. Someday I'm going to get it down, and it's going to be, I'm going to play with it. She keeps looking ahead. She's waiting. That's her hope, is that train. That's what Paul says. That's her hope, you see. We're just waiting for the time that we step into God's presence, and we, and we get it all. That's what keeps us from... Uh, from giving up. Now, Paul says, this light, momentary affliction is working for us an eternal weight of glory because we have this heavenly perspective. You see what Paul is saying? He says we look, look back at the character of God and all that he is and we focus on him. And then we remind ourselves of this tremendous thing that he's done for us. He's changed our hearts and he's renewing our minds day by day and making us more and more like our Lord Jesus. And on ahead is the promise of eternal life, which is a sure thing. Our destiny is, is fixed. We don't need to question it or, or be anxious about it. Paul says, that is a trustworthy statement. That's something to believe. That's something to cling to. It's very, very simple. Don't, don't complicate it. 
that's why he goes on in, in verse 9 and says, but, but shun foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Notice that's in contrast to the last line of verse 8. These things are good and profitable for men. But uh, controversy over, over trivia and over things which the church, uh, which people in the church uh, are, are unsure of, that's unprofitable. He says, and it's worthless. He uses a word. There are two words for worthless in the New Testament. One is empty of purpose, and the other is empty of content. This is the word empty of, of purpose. doesn't do any good. It's un, unfruitful, unprofitable. doesn't do anything for you. One of my pet peeves, you know this, I, 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 every once in a while I get an opportunity to talk about it, is the terrible thing that we've done to the church because we've, we've just complicated and obfuscated, I suppose is the word, the gospel. We, you know, we, we tend to dwell on trivia instead of centering on the things that, that really matter. We've divided the church and we've focused on getting all of our doctrines straight out here on the perimeter where we're unsure to the exclusion of, of getting what we know straight and then and then living out that truth in the world, living godly lives. We, we've just wasted a lot of time on things that are totally unprofitable. Modes of baptism. What possible significance can it, can it have in terms of, of our behavior in the world, whether we're, we're sprinkled or dipped or dunked or have it, Water poured on us, or what? I, mean, I cannot for the life of me see that the mode of baptism has anything to do with the kind of life that we're called to live in, in, in the world. And what real difference does it make whether the tribulation is before or during, or, or pardon me, the rapture is before or during or after the tribulation? Can it really have any significance whatever? in terms of our, of our behavior in the world, or whether there will be a literal millennium here on earth with Israel regathered in, in the land, or whether it's the church that, uh, that those promises are given to. I, I just can't see that it makes much difference. And we spend endless, useless, futile hours debating these things that don't matter instead of centering upon the person of God and getting to know Him and understanding the salvation that He's wrought for us and the change that, is, that, that has taken place in our lives and, and the possibility, because of the resources of Christ, of living righteous, godly, winsome lives in the world. That's what matters. As... as uh, Joe Aldridge says the main thing is to keep the main thing. The main thing. Just keep it simple. This last week we flew all over the state with John Forsyth. Uh, we had an Idaho Mountain Ministries conference and flew to Lewiston and flew to Pocatello and, and went through some pretty violent uh, weather on the way up to Lewiston. And we were all amazed at John's ability to keep that aircraft uh, going in the right direction and John says, well, it's really very simple. You just keep the pointy end going in the right direction and the dirty, dirty side down, and you're all right. <laughs> and I know there's more to it than that, but you know, it just struck me. We just, just got to keep it simple and center on the things that, that really matter. Did you ever hear the story of the two men that were shipwrecked on an island, and they both washed up on the beach, and, and uh, 
One man crawled out uh, on his hands and knees, and the first thing he could think of was to thank God for his deliverance. So he was praying, and he looked over, and he noticed the other man who had been saved was praying too, and he leaped up and ran over and said, Are you a Christian? The man said, Yes. Oh, praise God. He said, The two of us that were saved were, are Christians. He said, Are you a Lutheran? The man says, uh, Yes. Oh, praise God. I'm a Lutheran. Missouri Senate? Yes, Missouri Senate. Oh, praise God. Senator 1936? Yes, Senator 1936. Uh, post-millennial? Yes, yes, post-millennial. Oh, praise God, he said. Do, do, do you use uh, uh, crackers or wafers? Crackers. Heretic, he said. <laughs> yeah, it's got to center on the things that, that are profitable and good. That's why Paul says in, in verse, 10, uh, verse 10, reject a factious man after a first and second warning. In other words, a man who divides the church over non-essentials. Do you see what he's saying? you understand that? Paul says this is serious business. We're not going to countenance this upheaval of the church over non-essentials. We won't tolerate it. This is a hard, tough, apostolic word. I'm just following the context. Shun foolish controversies, he says, and strifes and disputes, for they are unprofitable and worthless. And a man who will not shun these futile discussions, these arguments, that's all right to discuss it. Certainly ought to have your mind made up. I know what I believe, or I think I know what I believe about all these issues. But that's a different thing from being divisive and argumentative about these matters. And he says, a man who will not listen is a man that's perverted. He uses an interesting word. It means uh, twisted. He's a screwball. Something wrong inside. He's perverted. And he's sinning. In other words, his divisiveness is not unconscious. It's not unintentional. It's on purpose. It's deliberate disobedience to the truth. Now, sometimes uh, a truth is important. If it's an essential, we have to stand up and we have to proclaim it. And if it divides the church, if it's a clearly stated principle in Scripture, then that's, that's something we, we have to proclaim. But over these non-essentials, as he puts it, these controversies and, and strife and dispute about the law, uh, if a man simply will not uh, submit to you after the, the first and second warning, reject him. Have nothing to do with it. Because the alternative, you see, is to divide the church and to deflect the church away from its main task, which is to know God and to make him known. Now, uh, Paul concludes with uh, a word about some of his friends there in, in Crete and in other places around the Roman Empire. When I send Artemis or Tychicus uh, to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. No one traveled in the wintertime then. It was uh, too uh, risky to sail the Mediterranean in the winter, and so he was going to winter in Nicopolis, which is a city on the Adriatic side of, of Greece. And uh, his friends Artemis and Tychicus were with him. Tychicus apparently was sent to uh, <laughs> replace Timothy at Ephesus. Be glad when I get through with this verse. <coughs> and, uh, uh, and, and Artemis perhaps replaced Titus so he could join Paul at Nicopolis. Diligently helped Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos, whom you know, who is this fine young uh, teacher from Alexandria, helped them on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. 
And let our people also learn to engage in good deeds. Here we are again, full circle. Let them learn to engage in beautiful deeds, attractive deeds, winsome deeds, deeds that will attract others to the Savior to meet pressing needs that they may not be unfruitful. His argument seems to be, you help Zenos and Apollos on their way. They're traveling through. You deal with them graciously and and kindly. But it's not just your responsibility, Titus. It's not the uh, leader of the church and the leaders of the church, but it's the responsibility of, of everyone to engage in good deeds, to meet pressing needs that they may not be unfruitful. See, church service is uh, not a matter of uh, serving on committees, merely serving on committees and, and running organizations. It's a matter of displaying the character of Christ wherever they are. And if you're doing that, Paul says, you're being fruitful, regardless of the place where God has planted you. You're being fruitful. And that's the bottom line. That's the purpose of it all. You, you teach people to know God. You teach them the resources that are available to them. You teach them to have a heavenly perspective instead of being rooted to this earth and the acquisition and the yearning for things here. You teach them to, to, to long for God and for eternity and to live lives that are, that are engaging, attractive, winsome. And that's what will draw people to the Savior. You realize that's exactly what Jesus says in, in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the, the poor in, in, in spirit. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those that hunger and thirst after righteousness. And then he says, you, that is those of you who are characterized by these qualities, you and you alone are the salt of the earth. It's anything about engaging in political action or social action, as good as those things may be. He says, it's your behavior that will salt Society. Salt uh, was used to arrest the spread of corruption. Uh, apparently, society can't save itself, can't help itself. But you can. You're salt. You can preserve the spread of evil, or you can halt, thwart, frustrate the spread of evil in society. How? By living righteously. And you and you alone, he says, are the light of the world. Light dispels darkness. The world has no light. But you, by your life and by your witness, can dispel that, that darkness. Now, you, you see, the, one of the reasons we've taught, uh, we've gone through Titus, both in our growth groups and uh, in our sessions here together, is because we feel this is the bottom line. The, the, the purpose of the church gathered is not merely to acquire information and knowledge and to fill our minds and hearts with truth. But we want to see that truth translated into a changed life, a renewed mind. And that's what God will do for us. Now, we, we are now on, on uh, Sunday mornings, a uh, thousand or so in number, and we live in a, in a community of a hundred thousand. And all of you have at least a hundred contacts that you make through the week, grocery clerks and people that work in service stations and bank tellers and people that you work with, at least a hundred people that you come in contact with. Which, and this is just one church in Boise. There are dozens of other churches with godly people that are living attractive lives out in, in the community. Think of the impact that we can have. You and you alone, Paul says, are the salt of the earth. You and you alone are the light of the world. Let's just keep the, the main thing the main thing. Let's remember as we learn this truth together, 
as a body of believers, that we make it true in our lives by means of the Holy Spirit, by dependence upon Him. He'll renew your mind. He'll renew your life. Let's pray. I'd like to ask uh, you and, and me and all of us to make a quiet commitment before the Lord this morning that we will center on the things that really matter. We'll get to know Him. And we'll come to understand better what He's done for us. And uh, we'll begin to see the need to store up treasure in heaven rather than invest solely and primarily in, in things here. And we'll begin to live the kind of lives that God's called us to live in our communities. Let's, let's do that together. Lord, we come to you with a great sense of helplessness and the realization that we simply don't have what it takes to live this way in our environment. There's a great deal of darkness, a great deal of, of evil around us. We want to affect the people that we come in contact with deeply. We want them to see the, the graciousness of our Lord and His truth in our lives. And so we ask you to make that true in us. We know that you've saved us, not merely from the guilt of our sin and the penalty of it, not merely saved us from from hell so we can go to heaven, but you've saved us from sin itself, and you have given us delivering power. We know it doesn't happen overnight, but little by little you can change us. And so we ask that that would be true, and that as a body of believers we'd be known for righteous living. Help us, Lord, because we need your help. We thank you that you are the source that we can turn to day after day to meet our needs. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.